those of you who were here last Sunday were given an opportunity to take a copy of the Sunday school lesson of the week before. I explained at that time why I was doing what I did. <coughs> I take teaching this class seriously. If I didn't, I wouldn't take the time to do all that I do. And I felt after having taught that one lesson that I had just begun to touch the surface on something that was very vital. And I felt that I was cheating you for not giving you more and I promised that I would do a paper on the lesson so that you could read it at your leisure. And that's what I did. Now, if there is anyone today who did not get a copy last week and would like to have one, there's still some extra copies there. All of this is to say that I said to you when I gave it to you that I always give an opportunity for you to respond to the lesson. And I would do the same for this written lesson that we would take a few minutes before we begin on today's lesson. If you had a question, comment, or anything that you would like to offer in view of that particular lesson, <coughs> we would do that before we move into today's lesson. So do you have any questions? Yes? Vance, I was uh, interested in when you talked about the book in on the right about the separation of the body, the physical body, and the spiritual body. <coughs> I wanted to hear that you said there were two trends, two thoughts in there, that the body and soul stays together, and then it, there's another uh, thought process of backed up by scripture that they're separate. And I thought about cremation, and I don't know how many others have or whatever, and it seems to me that's kind of opposed to the body soul. And I just want to see what your thoughts were on that. I'm going to be cremated. <laughs> Your body, just in minutes, is reduced to what it becomes if left for natural causes to deteriorate the body. And there's really very little difference between the cremated body and the body that has decayed in the grave over a period of time. As to the separation of the soul from the body, as I pointed out, in the paper, the Jewish concept of soul and body is that they are inseparable. The soul cannot exist without the body. Therefore, at the time of resurrection, it is a bodily resurrection with the soul. The Greek mind says that the body and soul are separate. The body is evil, the soul is divine. And once you get rid of your body, good riddance. You're going to live eternity now with one that's more in keeping with your soul. Those are the two positions, and you're free to choose whichever position that uh, you prefer on that. But the reason for the two is the fact of in one they're inseparable, the other they are different altogether. What helped me is that uh, someone said we are a soul and we have a body. Yes. And that, that fits in perfectly with the uh, Greek concept that the soul, taken to an extreme, the Greek would say the soul is imprisoned in the body. Can't wait to get out. The body is just a carriage for the soul. Paul said specifically that 
at the time of our death that we do not take into heaven the body that carried us around on earth. There is a physical body, there is a spiritual body. And so um, whichever you accept, it isn't the physical body that you carry with you throughout eternity. It's a spiritual body. Well, they say you would recognize your loved ones in heaven. Does that mean if a spiritual body, then it's, it's similar in recognition to the one on earth, or what? <laughs> I mean, even though it's not a bodily, you know, uh, earthly body, it's a heavenly body, and would it be... If we're going to recognize each other, I mean, we're going to have to have some... Well... Visually, apparently we can because Jesus was recognizable to his disciples. Paul said, we will have the body that Jesus had. As far as our relationship in heaven is concerned, it won't be a bodily relationship. And I know my beautiful wife, not because she's beautiful, but because of what's inside of her. She's just a beautiful person inside. And in heaven, that's what I will cherish because there'll be more beautiful women than her there. Don't you tell her that. <laughs> but I, th I don't think there'll be anybody more beautiful on the inside than her in heaven. Is your mic on? <laughs> oh, but... <laughs> oh. Maybe he better decide that something's wrong with that system today. <laughs> oh, man. Any other comment on it? I don't want to labor it, but I do want to answer any question that might have come to your mind. Yes. Um, you said that some, things, some positions were supported by Scripture, but the one thing that you didn't uh, address was purgatory. Purgatory is not mentioned in Scripture at all. How did, how did the Roman Catholics come up with that concept? What caused them to think that that was a mistake? Tertullian, one of the early church fathers living in the second century, was the first evidence we have of that thought. And it was picked up by Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and all the other church fathers. It was based upon this concept. If you are perfect when you die, you go straight to heaven. If you have not accepted Christ, you go straight to hell. But very few people die with a perfect life, so they go to purgatory. <coughs> Pope John Paul was quoted in this <coughs> manuscript as saying that you can't take any imperfection into heaven, so you go to purgatory while all of those imperfections are dealt with. When you become perfect, then you can go on to heaven. So really, that position really uh, uh, doesn't accept that Christ's blood covers our sins. That's right, and neither do the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics believe it is by works. Okay. And so you can have works done on your behalf in purgatory. But we who believe that we are saved by grace and not by works, it wouldn't do any good if we were in purgatory and people were doing all of the great things on our behalf. It wouldn't do any good because... It's grace that, uh, so it's a different point of view. Uh, uh, as I mentioned in the paper, uh, Martin Luther accepted purgatory in 1517 when the Protestant broke away from the Catholic Church. In 1519, he still believed in purgatory, but in 1530, he said, no, I'm wrong. Purgatory is not a part of it. And I don't know any Protestant group that 
accepts purgatory theologically. Some wit suggested that they any penance payments first, and then they thought of purgatory to support. Yeah. <laughs> Great fundraiser. Well, if you can't do it by yourself here on earth before you die, then forget it. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I just think you're going to have to accept it and do everything you can by yourself. Now, what's good? Do a good. Someone else going to go in intercession for you? <clears throat> I mean. Um. Back to the fact of saints going immediately to heaven, only the Virgin Mary and the apostles and the saints have died with perfect goodness and went straight to heaven. Everybody else has gone to purgatory except those who uh, were unsaved, who had no grace at the time of their death. Yes? A little along that line, would you uh, bring up James and how he says, without works, how can I tell you whether you got anything at all. The works are an outgrowth of what you have. That's right. But as a Catholic, they're taking it too far then. Is that what you're saying? Well, works has been a part of the Christian faith from the very beginning. Uh, it was realized at the time of Christ that none of us can attain heaven through works. Therefore, God, through Christ, has given us grace, which is simply because of the death of Christ. You don't understand how. I don't understand how. Nobody understands how the death of Christ would accomplish it. But in God's mind, it did. Through the death of Christ, then grace was administered to all of us who will accept his death so that we are seen by God as perfect, even though we are imperfect. Grace brings perfection. That is, if we accept his grace. Now, it didn't become automatic just because he died. We have to accept him and live by his standards. When we become Christians, then we follow the teachings of Christ. We have an obligation to do good works. I mentioned in the paper about uh, Leslie Weatherhead's recounting the young woman who said, I'll show him my hands. Well, her hands won't get her into heaven. But if she is truly committed to Christ, her hands will show what it means to be committed to Christ. We do good works because we are reconciled. And so not to become reconciled, but because we're reconciled. Yes? My name is Grace. Some versions of the Apostles' Creed say what happened to Jesus descended unto hell and then arose. Some don't. What's the story of that? not in all of us. Well, when you say he descended to hell, he descended to the place of the dead, is what it really means. And uh, so it's just a matter of uh, interpretation as to those three days as to what Christ did during that time. The Apostles' Creed, of course, is not out of the Bible. It was a established by the early Christians in a church council to express their faith. It's in some denominations, it's not in others. And uh, so it's just a matter of the choice of your belief. We have no definite proof as to what occurred those three days. You can believe he went and spent it with others who had already died, or he could have spent it in his own tomb, whatever. 
Wayne, did he get that to save the people that were already there and all this other? Which which denominations use that? Which one? Did you, that descended in the hill. Presbyterian for one, but I, I can't enumerate the numbers who might. But it's no big theological problem because uh, it has nothing to do with the uh, nature of grace through Christ. Um, well, I don't know more, any more to say on that other than the fact that some say he went to the place of the dead, preached to those who had already died, but there's no nothing in Scripture that would indicate that happened. Well, I don't mean to take all of our time here. I've got a lesson to teach. <laughs> yes. You one question. Uh, it seems to me like the Ten Commandments are, are somewhat synonymous with good works. How does that come in? Still are. Keep them. <laughs> grace, grace didn't undo any good works. It's not a substitute for good works. It is... God's gift of acceptance that we cannot attain through good works. He accepts us anyway, but we keep on trying. Christian perfection, John Wesley's sanctification, go on to perfection. When we accept Christ, we don't stop there. We keep going on to perfection. When I was ordained a minister, the bishop asked me, will you become perfect in this life? I'm perfect. <laughs> I don't understand that question. None of us get perfect in this life. But the question is, will you go on to perfection? Yes, we all go on to perfection, but we never attain perfection in this life because we're still in a body that is tempted daily. The flesh is weak. We don't automatically become immune to uh, sinning. We just keep accepting God's grace every time we do. Well, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's there for the Feast of the Booths. He was there for the last two or three weeks that we have studied him, and he is still there today. It is a celebration, the Jewish celebration, of the time that the children of Israel were in the wilderness. It gets its name, the Feast of Booths, because the people lived in Booths, such as the people lived in the wilderness in those 40 years that they walked through the wilderness prior to going to the promised land. And as a part of the celebration of the Feast of Booths, at least on the first night and possibly each following night of the seven days, seven days of the festival, on the first night at least, four large candelabras were placed out in the court at the temple lighted, and the illumination was such that it spread out all over the city. You could see the light of those candles burning wherever you were in the city. Jesus, witnessing the splendor of the burning candelabras, then used an expression that would once again tell to the people what they can expect of him. There are seven metaphors that Jesus uses to describe himself. And these metaphors simply are words that describe his nature. Uh, Wayne Cummings and I just a minute or two ago were talking about John Ruston. 
who was pastor at Broad Street Church in Kingsport for a while. John Rustin came to Kingsport by way of Nashville, but he was pastor of the Mount Vernon Place Methodist Church in Washington at the time that Peter Marshall was pastor of Saint of New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. All of you know who Peter Marshall was. Well, Catherine Marshall says in her book that the pastor of the Mount Vernon Place Church, her husband and the pastor of First Baptist were close friends and they got together every week and had coffee together and they nicknamed one another. Peter Marshall was named Twittering Birds Marshall. <laughs> and if you've read his sermons or heard his sermons, you know where he got the name, Twittering Birds. Eloquent as only a Scotsman can be. I had a homiletics professor in seminary who didn't like uh, the fact that he was a Scotsman and getting all the treatment that he was getting just because he was a Scotsman. He said, if you can't preach, the next best thing to it is to preach with a Scottish accent. <laughs> but Peter Marshall was, an, was a profoundly eloquent preacher, and so they called him Twittering Birds Marshall. John Rustin's nickname was Pack'em in Rustin because his church was packed every Sunday with people. Uh, she makes no mention of the nickname of the third, but she mentions these two. We attach names to people that reflects who they are. That's what a nickname is. If someone gets in the ring and wins all of his fights, we call him champ because that reflects who he is. Well, Jesus adopted terms that reflected who he was. We, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the water that came down from heaven. These were in the past two weeks. Today, he says, I am the light of the world. Possibly sprung from his mind by having seen the light from the candelabra at the great celebration in Jerusalem. But for whatever cause, he says, I am light. One cannot find a word that speaks more eloquently of power, of might, of strength than light. Without the sun, everything would die. Plants can't live without light. Photosynthesis is dependent upon the light of the sun. Light perpetuates life. It, it has heat. Light is heat that keeps us warm. If the sun were to burn out, the heat would be gone. There are so many attributes of light that are reflective of who Jesus was. Light dispels the darkness. The light came into the world and the darkness refused to accept the light. And this was the rejection of Christ. I don't have much time, but I'm going to use three metaphors of my own to describe the light that Jesus said that he was. And one of these is the North Star. Jesus is the North Star. From the very beginning, when the mariners set out upon the seas, they discovered that up in the heavens there was one light that stayed in place. The others would move about. If you charted your trip by any other star, you would become confused. You would be lost upon the waters. But there was one star that was always in place 
that you could chart your journey by that one star. And it was at the heart of navigation. Jesus is that North Star. He is that one certainty in life. He is that one thing to which we can attach ourselves that will never change. I mentioned a couple of times before that when I graduated from the University of Tennessee, J.C. Penney was my graduation uh, speaker. J.C. Penney, as most of you know, founded the J.C. Penney Stores. He came out of an impoverished background. His father was a Baptist minister, but not an employed Baptist minister. He was a farmer, and he preached on Sundays. When J.C. Penney was old enough to go to school, there was no money for him to go to school. His father got him a job in the store as a clerk. And from there on, he built the empire, the J.C. Penney Stores, built upon the golden rule. In every respect, his businesses lived up to the golden rule. He was a man of great religious conviction. By the mid-1920s, he had hundreds of stores worth millions of dollars all over the United States. The Depression hit. J.C. Penney lost everything. Shortly before the Depression hit, he lost his wife, and he was never able to accept life without his wife. He just couldn't adjust to her having died. And then, having gone into bankruptcy, lost millions of dollars and still owed $7 million, which he couldn't pay. And he had a nervous breakdown. He went to a sanitarium off of the Great Lakes. And while in the sanitarium, he grew more depressive than ever. And on one occasion, even wrote letters to his family for the certainty that he was going to die that night and he wanted to leave them one last word. He went out to the lake and got in a boat. There was something calming about floating upon the water and so he rode out onto the lake and in his exhaustion fell asleep. When he awoke, it was night. Blackness all around him. He had no idea where the shoreline was. He could row forever and go deeper and deeper into the lake. He had no idea how to get back. Suddenly he remembered the North Star. He searched out the North Star, found his bearings, rowed back to the shore, and then went to his room. He thought as he lay in his bed that night, if only there were a North Star in my spiritual life. And then he came to realize there is. I haven't acknowledged it. Jesus Christ is the North Star. And with a renewed commitment to Christ, he went to a gathering the next day where they were singing hymns, and he joined robustly into the singing of the hymns. He made a rededication of his life, continued to live by the same principle. When he died, the J.C. Penney Stores was the second largest stores in America, second only to Sears Roebuck. He was worth millions of dollars in a reputation that would always shine in history. The one thing that changed his life was that night when he equated Jesus Christ as the center of his life with the North Star that had brought him out of the wilderness of the lake back to his place of sleeping. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the North Star. You can always navigate by me. I'll never change. 
and I'll take you where you need to go. The second metaphor that I would use about Jesus is a lighthouse. I love lighthouses. We visited the many lighthouses upon the coast, eastern coast of America. And uh, lighthouses were built to save mariners at times of storm or fog or whatever distress might occur at sea. As long as men have navigated upon the sea, there have been lighthouses. In the beginning, they built huge bonfires on the side of the sea where there were rocky precipices to ward off the sailors coming into the bank at that place and getting destroyed with the rocks. In time, then buildings were built. And along the eastern coast of America, there are dozens of lighthouses whose sole purpose is to send out beams of light saying to those who need help upon the sea, this is a spot that you need to avoid because there is danger in the darkness. There was a ship plowing through the water off the coastline of America and a heavy fog came in Visibility was zero. The ship kept its fog lights on and its horn blaring, but then it spotted a light in the distance and they were on a collision course. So the captain of the ship blinked to the ship through the light that was directly ahead. Change your course. We're headed in the same point of collision. And the message came back from the light. You change your course. And the captain sent the signal back, we are a ship of royalty. We are a part of the Royal Navy. You give way to us. And the message came back from the light, and I'm the lighthouse and you're headed for a reef. <laughs> Jesus is a lighthouse that will protect us from anything that may ever threaten our well-being spiritually. And that is a light that Jesus can claim for himself as a way enriching our lives. I am the light of the world. And the third metaphor that I use is the metaphor of the lantern. A beautiful painting of Jesus standing at the door as depicted in the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Holman Hunt, in painting that beautiful picture, painted Jesus outside the door, which incidentally does not have a latch on the outside. He can't get in unless you open the door from the inside to let him in. But standing there at the door, he holds a lantern in his hand. <clears throat> I am the light of the world. Jesus is a lantern that will light the path wherever we're going to show us the way. My grandparents lived on a farm in North Carolina. One summer, I spent the vacation period on my grandparents' farm, and I learned the value of a lantern. The, there was no inside plumbing, but about 100 yards away from the house, there was a place to meet whatever needs you might have during the night. But you couldn't get from the house to that small house with a crescent in the door without carrying the lantern. 
And there was a lantern always kept at the kitchen door so that when you left and went into the darkness, the darkness moved as you walked through the pathway with the lantern in front of you. Diogenes, the great Greek philosopher, searched the world with a lantern looking for an honest man. Lanterns illuminate wherever they are. They will illuminate what it's about. We do not walk in mystery in life, spiritual mystery, because there is the illumination of Christ's mind. I speak for the Father. This is what he was doing at Jerusalem, and everyone got up in arms against him. I am speaking for the Father. They said in Deuteronomy, we are told there have to be two witnesses to prove what has been said is true. And he said, I have two witnesses. One is me and the other is the Father. And they said, that's blasphemy. They couldn't accept that truth. Jesus is truth, <coughs> dispelling all darkness in which we live when we allow his teachings to be a lantern, a light unto our path. One of the most powerful images that Jesus uses for himself is, I am the light of the world. <coughs> well, I didn't go over too much. Any comment or question on today's lesson? Thank you, Vince.